If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. John, guten Tag. Wie geht's, John? This yeah. Is Deutschland for Allah. <laughs> Morning. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. John and I are doing rudimentary German lessons here. We're discussing all sorts of carry on. This is maybe, I was going to say it's the last in our installment of the European tour, but maybe not, John. Maybe make a little bit more traveling. Mac, knowing you, you're only getting going. So. <laughs> a little bit more traveling, but this one is coming from Berlin. Right. And the reason it's from Berlin, John, A, because Germany, the most important and probably most misunderstood economy in Europe. And you need to get involved in Germany. You need to listen a little bit to their news. By the way, if you want to get German news in English, if you don't speak German, there's Die Welt, which is the world, you know, German yeah. news service. CW. It's amazing. Yeah. It's really, really, really very good. And it just gives you a German worldview, which we don't get. Because I think, in fairness, because we speak English, we have been on the receiving end of relentless English anti-German propaganda since we've been young. Mm. Right? Going from Monty Python to Forty Towers to Dad's Army to all that sort of stuff. And we see Germany through the lens of a rather contorted British view, which is entirely framed by the Second World War. Yeah. Right? And entirely framed by the fact that, you know, and the First World War, right? Mm. And I can really understand that. Remember I was talking, I was being in Somerset the other day, those little monuments and those tiny villages in Somerset to all those fellows who died in the First World War. I mean, it's a very, very, very deep. But the, the thing about Germany is, it is by far and away the most important society in Europe, not just economy, but yeah. society. Actually, actually I was going to say DW, Deutsche Welle. Uh, I think you used to be able to get that on late night on RTE Radio 1 Extra, I think it was. But I think they cut that back. I think they started paying the stars. Because they had to pay Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Swear to God. Anyway, <laughs> stop that. Don't be going there. No, no, Don't no, be going there. We're done with that. But so I'm in Berlin, John, last yeah. week. And I love, what I love doing when I go there, speaking of my Todd, is doing tours like green kind of tourist tours. Yeah. So I go online and I say, I wouldn't mind a historical tour of Weimar, Berlin, right? And the reason I want to do that is because I'm interested in the hyperinflation there, yeah. what happened and how yeah. the whole thing, how the whole thing collapsed in the 1920s. Well, you need to get somebody who really knows their stuff then. Exactly. So I go online and I see a fella, first cup, 
Finn Ballard. And I said, that sounds kind of Irish, <laughs> right. fella called Finn. Yeah. But I didn't know he got that. But anyway, he's a historian, does his walking tours. So email him, comes back, and the email comes back by G, which is how <laughs> Belfast people introduce each other to everyone. It's about you. How's it about you? So he's Belfast guy, actually from Bangor, from up, up very close to where Shannon's from, right? Yeah, yeah. North County Town, uh, historian, amazing guy. So we decide to go on a trip. We do our, it was Pride, right? Okay. Right. So we do our sort of gay tour of... Gay Weimar. <laughs> gay Weimar, exactly, exactly. Fascinating stuff. Very, Really, really interesting. But what what is so amazing for me when you're in Germany, it's a bit like when you're in any big monumental city, is the secrets that are held in the architecture of places, right? Yeah. Like when you go and you look at a building, you think, what is this building? What was this building, yeah. right? And particularly in Germany, because things have changed hands so many, many times. So I'm walking by a place I was only the once, Soho House. Now, I know you're very swanky, and you were a, you were a member of Soho House in London. <laughs> many years, many ago. years ago, back in the 90s. Yes, John was a member of Soho House. You see, he comes across all man of the people, but actually, he was a member of Soho House. I have been to Purely so- for business reasons, Soho House the once. Okay, Soho House is kind of swanky. I can tell you, I have never been on the receiving end of ruder service than no, in Soho really? House in Berlin, right? I was in a little small bar. Called they didn't a, like the cut of your they jib. They didn't like the cut of my jib, called the Metze Ecke, which is a really, really brilliant old bar in what was East Germany, mm. or East Berlin, on Metzestrasse, right? Right in the centre, run by the same family for decades, right? And then, of course, at the end, somebody says, oh, well, look, Joe, you know, the, the person was Peter Frankopan. I was oh, at, yeah. Peter yeah. Frankopan, he says, I'm a member of this place. Come on, we go down to Soho House. They were... Off the scale route, right? Wow. But what, I mean, it was really, it was really hilarious. Like, you know, yeah. like, how dare you come in and demand a drink and, and pay me for the pleasure of having a drink, right? <laughs> Outrageous, right? Like, I mean, they, they was just... I'd say Frank Van's actually pretty funny in those situations. He's very, very funny, you know. But it was so spectacularly rude that you'd almost have some respect for them. Yeah. Right, to actually yeah, yeah. carry that off, right? It's part of the brand, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we just, we didn't look like Soho House sort of people, right? Yeah. Okay, certainly I didn't look like... Anyway, but the point is, the building where Soho House is in Germany, is fascinating, right? The secrets held in the building, right? So the building, this monumental sort of art deco building built in the 1920s. Mm. And the fascinating thing of this is that this was the first ever massive department store in Germany. It was called Kaufhaus Jonas, right? And it was run by two, I presume, shop assistants on the way up. Yeah. There were two entrepreneurs, right? A guy called Golliber, Hermann Golliber, and another guy called Hugo Halle. And what they understood was credit Right, they imported the obsession. The Americans introduced consumer credit in the 1920s. Mm. And this is why the Great Depression was as bad as it was. Because for the first time ever, consumers had debts, had credit, right? Okay, right. So the reason, yeah. and this is why the Great Depression. The first store card then. Exactly. So this, yeah, is why the yeah. first, this is why the Great Depression was so disastrous for Germany as well. Okay, I'll explain this to you, right? So you go into this, this huge building and it was the first American-style department store in Europe. Mm. Run by two guys, important part of the story is they happen to be Jewish. Right. They introduce consumer credit, like American sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. People loved that. You could bring stuff back. You could, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? Mm. Then, of course, Hitler gets into power in 1933. They have a thing called the Aryanization of businesses. So they, obviously, if there's a Jewish owner, they kick them out. Yeah. They kicked out these two guys. Both of them ended up in America. Both of them died very soon after arriving in America. And just probably the stress of everything, right? Yeah, God, yeah. But you know, they lost everything. But you know what Hitler turned it into? The biggest department store where people love to shop. They turned it into the Hitler Youth 
main building. Right. right. So the Nazis took it over, yeah. turned it the Hitler Youth main building. So you're going from the 1920s to the 1930s. Then the commies come in, they turn it into the Stasi headquarters. Right. Right. Okay. okay. So this is where Putin was. This is, the, this is where Putin must have been reporting to. Yeah. Right. And then in the great circular flow of history, it ends up being bought by Soho House, a, an extraordinary <laughs> upmarket, highly leveraged British restaurant chain. Right? So if you actually just see the whole history of the 20th century is yeah. there in this. You have consumers, brilliant. 1920s, the whole thing. Then you've got the Hitler Youth in the same building, right? Yeah. And then the Stasi come into it. And then eventually at the very end of it, it's all sold off to some rapacious sort of property speculator who plonks in on top of this, one of the greatest sort of yuppie brands in the world. That accounts for the rudeness. So, so myself and Finn Ballard went on our trip around all sorts of amazing places in Sch maybe Schöneberg, which is a part of Berlin, which is slightly older part of Berlin. It's not, yeah. like the, it's not like the center of the trendy sort of east part. It's older part of Berlin. And amazing stories, amazing stories. There's another fantastic place we went to, which was called the El Dorado, which was a gay club, right? It was the first mm. openly gay club in the world. Okay. okay. And Weimar Germany was very, very expressive, very, very... Very, you know, very sexually, very, very ambiguous, etc. Mm. And all sorts of good stuff happening and bad stuff happening and weird and wonderful stuff. But in this club, the El Dorado, in 1923, 100 years ago with the hyperinflation, yeah. a young journalist named Samuel Wilder, known to the world as Billy Wilder, oh, okay, okay, yeah. used to hang out there, right? And yeah. this was a cross-dressing club. I think about Billy Wilder's biggest movie ever was Some Like It Hot. Oh, still a classic. With Marlon Monroe. Yes, yeah. Where Tony Curtis, and I think it's Jack Lemmon, yeah, cross-dress. Yeah. Cross yeah. Right? They do, think yeah. about this. So what you have is the biggest movie in America in the 50s, 1958, yeah. Some Like It Hot, was written by a young Jewish guy, Samuel Wilder, who became Billy Wilder, who was hanging out at this club, the El Dorado, in Berlin. And all the characters he saw there, he shoehorned into Some Like It Hot. Yeah. And amazingly, Some Like It Hot was the first movie ever in Hollywood yeah. to break what was called the Hayes Code. And the Hayes Code was a code of moral behaviour in Hollywood, right? Right. Go on, explain this. So you couldn't have any overt sexuality. Yeah. You couldn't have, there's no way you could have gay people or, or cross-dressers or anything like that, right? The Hayes Code was that Hollywood had to uphold American values. And those American values were mom, dad, three kids, house in the suburbs, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Kind of Christian values. And Billy Wilder, having learned his trade in Germany, creates this entirely subversive movie called Some Like It Hot with you, Marlon Monroe as the main person. Well, do you know what? This is amazing. It's good stuff, isn't it? It's brilliant. It was only last night I was actually talking to Emma, my daughter, about this. And you know Emma, she's mad yes. into film history and she's a real film buff. But she was talking about all these old movies and stuff. And she said, Dad, do you know who the first on-screen same-sex kiss was? I was going, I don't know. So apparently it was Marlene Dietrich. But the thing is, it was in that very place that you're talking about. In that about. very place, in the El Dorado, yeah. yes. And do you know what Marlene Dietrich's real name was? Go on. Mary Magdalene Dietrich. Oh, was it? She was a deeply Catholic person. Wow. Mary wow. Magdalene. And she was the big star. And of course, so what you see is Hollywood mm. was basically became... Germanic. So all those big German stars, Fritz Lang, Marlene Dietrich, Billy Wilder, all those people, they were all kicked out by Hitler. Yeah, yeah. So they all went to Hollywood 
And they came with their European subversive ideas, right? And of course, the Americans under McCarthy and McCarthyism, and they were, they were always kind of slightly, well, were they communist, were they not communist? So they superimposed this thing called the Hayes Rule, which is that Hollywood would actually portray an image of wholesome Americana. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But in actual fact... It was it, depraved as hell. Absolutely, totally. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, totally. And Billy Wilder, it's an amazing story. Probably the most successful director, one of the most successful directors in American cinematic history. Yeah. Learned his trade in these gay clubs, transgressive clubs yeah. in, the, in, in Berlin. The, the, and then the gradually... The whole burlesque scene. Yeah, and they gradually started to introduce yeah. him to the United States. So this is the stuff I was talking about. But what the reason I'm interested in this, John, is that economics always mirrors culture and culture always mirrors economics. Yeah. And in 1923, at the height of the hyperinflation, and just to give you a statistic, in 1922, 190 marks bought you a dollar. Mm. In 1923, 632 billion marks bought you a dollar. Right? <laughs> okay, so imagine that, right? Your pockets are stuffed. Imagine that. That's the wheelbarrow stuff, right? Yeah. Now, but the biggest movie of the year was a movie by Fritz Lang called Dr. Mabos, the Gambler. And it was about a currency speculator, right? Right, go on. And it was about this very evil currency speculator who got inside people's heads and used to move the market up and down. And it was because at the time, the German, average German person was trying to figure out who's winning from this hyperinflation because somebody's winning, but we're losing, right? Mm. And of course, what happened in the hyperinflation is the people who won, people with land, people with assets that went up in value, currency speculators, people who moved the market up and down that were actually profiting from everybody's. The people who also won or didn't lose so much were very poor workers because they had no property and they had no savings. So the people who lost everything were the people with savings, who'd bought government bonds, who'd bought government debt, who'd financed the government. They were all wiped out. And of course, Fritz Lang is trying to explain to them what the hell is happening, but he's doing it in these big cinematic, it was a four hour, a four hour silent as well, right? But you know, what is fascinating, this is what interests me when I was there, was that culture always reflects economics, right? You know, so when Michael Douglas Mm. did Wall Street, it was the top of the stock market crash, all that sort of stuff. Typically 80s stuff. All that sort of stuff. And now when you look back, what you see is that art, cinema, every sort of pursuit, intellectual pursuit, cultural pursuit, expressive pursuit is anchored in the economy of the day. And the economy of the day was chaos. And therefore the art was chaos. Yeah. And these, these, these clubs, these, 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 these experimental clubs in Berlin, they were all a function also of the fact that people's money was losing value all the time. So they went out and spent it. Right. This is what yeah, happens exactly. in hyperinflation is you yeah. spend money, you go out partying, you know? And then of course it all came to a very sudden end in 1933. But fascinatingly, it was November the 8th, 1923, in Munich, was two things happened. One is the hyperinflation was at its peak in November. And two, Hitler organized his Munich putsch, his beer hall, beer Mm. keller putsch. And of course, he did eight eight months in prison after that. And then he wrote Mein Kampf. And that gave him the myth that he was some sort of hero. But what you can see is that the politics, the economics, when a society changes from one state to another, it's the chaos in that transition that is fascinating. And that's what we're going to talk about to it's, Andrea Binder right well, now. Well, I'll tell you what, let's get into the state of Germany today. Yes. A hundred years on yes. from the hyperinflation after this. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So, John, we're going to talk about Germany right now because the economy is in an extraordinary yeah. state of transition. And we have a fantastic, fantastic, somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And like you and I, some like us, hot, <laughs> us two cross-dressers. <laughs> By the way, if you are going to Berlin, Google Finn Ballard. The tours are well worth doing. Now, Andrea Binder, who is a political economist from the Free University of Berlin. Her official title, you'll love this, is very Deutsch. Go on. Freigeist Research Group Leader. Freigeist? Yeah, which means a free spirit. Right? Oh, right. And she's okay. doing all sorts of research into German politics or whatever. But she came to Kilconomics, wonderful brain. How do you get a gig right. like that? I want to be a free spirit. I want to be a, a free spirit research, <laughs> research leader. Anyway, but the Free University of Berlin, one of the best universities in Germany. So let's go to Berlin and let's talk to Andrea. Andrea, how are you? Lovely to see you. Hi, David. I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. Not at all. Not at all. Now let's get to the, 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 the crux of the issue. I was, as you know, I was chatting to you in Germany last week, right? We were having a, we were having a drink, and you mentioned this 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 word, Zeitwende. Now, what is this? What is going on in Germany? First, this is the whole essence. But there was a word you mentioned, which I thought was really fascinating. Explain it to me, and why Germans are using this expression right now. Okay, so the term Zeitwende, so sort of like a turning point, right, was used by Chancellor Scholz on the day of the invasion of Russia into Ukraine in a parliamentary speech to signify to the German electorate and the German people that something fundamentally has changed for German politics because of Russian aggressive revisionism. And what he meant to say is like sort of like an awakening to the geopolitical realities that somehow in the larger public we've sort of not taken into account you know, there was 2014, there was Crimea, we could have done that uh, earlier. But this was to signify something has to change fundamentally in how we conceive of international politics and how we do politics domestically. And that was mainly meant we need to spend much more on the military than Germans are used to. So the initial idea was really one of security policy. But now has that kind of moved into something else? Because because security policy is the big one. It's not just, in fairness, Andre, it's not just Germany was asleep. All of Europe has been asleep for a long, long time about the realities of Russia, the realities of the, the fact that the, 
the end of the Soviet Union never really ended for the Russians. It ended for us. We signed these treaties and said, oh, okay, that's fine. But the Russians were seething. They were, they were pissed off. They were, they, they'd lost large chunks of what they regarded as their land. So it wasn't over for them, but we thought it was over for us. But, but explain to me the context of this in terms of German economics. What does it mean for German economics that the world has changed, that you're at a tipping point, that something else has to be conceived of? Okay, yes. I think it was pretty early on clear because we didn't want to fight that war directly in military terms. So the European Union decided on sanctions. And sanctions on Russia obviously involved the question of energy that we as Germans uh, received from Russia. So 55% of our gas consumption came from Russia. So I do think there is a qualitative difference between Germany and other European countries, which also got Russian gas, but the extent to which German energy provision was entangled with Russia is really specific to Germany for two reasons. The one is that we have a strong industrial base still in, in our country, which needs a lot of energy. And because geographically, we don't have our own energy sources, especially fossil fuels. And so there's always been, since the end of the Second World War, the question of energy security looming large over German politics. It was like, where do we get the energy from? And so at the end of the Cold War, we already had lots of energy from Russia during the Cold War. But the end of the Cold War made it possible to really scale this up and also to move it from a political level to what was conceived of as a commercial level. So there would be companies, energy companies, and industrial companies having direct relationships with Russian energy companies. And the war brought all of that to a sudden stop. So the Seitenwende, as you pronounce it, we say Seitenwende. <laughs> Seiten? I can, I'll do my Tse. Ah, nice, yeah. Meine Deutsch kommt zurück. <laughs> Yes. I'm glad. Um, I'm glad you find our pronunciation so ridiculous. This is our best <laughs> German just accent. Because I did it as well. Zeitenwende. So, <laughs> Zeitenwende. Yeah, yeah. Quickly turned from a question of security and military spending to a question of how do we get energy to continue with the economic model that we've run since a very long time. Now, now let, let's have a look very briefly at the German economics model. I was just chatting to John before we came on there, and I said, John, imagine the German economics. The Germans heat things up, right? That's what their economy does. They boil things up. They heat things up. It's the best description and, ever, I have to say. A, this is like <laughs> economics 101, right? Explain to me, because so you have an economy like, let's say, Ireland, much, much smaller, whatever, but we have a highly services intensive. So we kind of move bits of paper around the place and, you know, sell advertising and, and, and marketing and all that sort of stuff. But you guys make stuff. And making stuff involves heating up stuff. So you really need energy. Explain to me what this industrial model is and why it's so different to the rest of Europe. So the industrial model of Germany is, of course, very much based in productive industry. Probably the most well-known is obviously the automotive industry. But that's by far not the only thing, right? We have medical equipment which is very big, and we have chemicals, which is very big, and which is the input for every other productive process that you do either in Germany or elsewhere where people buy our chemicals. So there is a big sort of productive industry, and this productive industry is very much focused at exporting their products. 
And to be able to sustain this model, you need to have two things. The one is technological innovation. So the products must be good, but then also you need to be cheap. And I think a part of the story that we've discussed in Europe already in the past is that German wage compression was one way of achieving this price competition because most of what we export obviously exported to other European countries. And that this created domestic problems, of course, of inequality, but also problems for the countries who are importing our goods and have difficulties to compete. So, but what was lacking in this story is that, of course, we can only be competitive on prices if the energy is cheap as well. Exactly. And that part of the discussion has somehow been lost in the public debate, in policy, because... Russia was a very reliable energy partner for Germany, right? Over 25 years, there were or even longer. So it was just taken as a given that we could continue to have this cheap energy from Russia, which sustained next to the wage compression, the export-led industrial model of the German economy. And so now we're in a situation where, and I'm going to talk about wages in a second, because it's it's always amazing for an Irish person. When we, when I first went to Germany, it was an incredibly expensive country for me. That was a long time ago. Now I'm in Germany and it's incredibly good value. Everything is incredibly good value in comparison to us. So we have let wages, as we were talking about last week in Ireland, go out of control, okay, and all our wages. So we, we kind of, we feel richer, but because inflation, cost of living has gone up, we're not richer, okay, but in Germany... We actually, when you go to a bar in Germany or a restaurant, things are incredibly good value for us. I'm going to talk about that in two seconds, but I want to go back to this idea of the industrial model. So you have an industrial model highly dependent on cheap energy. You've now just got a shock that that cheap energy isn't around anymore. You also have a population very, very environmentally aware, which is, distinguishes Germany from maybe the rest of Europe in many cases. How do you reconcile this difference between the environmentally aware population and the requirement of German industry for lots and lots of environmentally polluting inputs, gas, etc.? That is a very good point. I think there is this tension that every government has to come to terms with and that you can see that they are struggling with over the decades. And this is that you have what I call like the industrial aristocracy of Germany. So this is sort of like a long-standing ownership in these industrial conglomerates, which are at the core of our economic model and which historically has been very stable. And I call it aristocracy because there's a dynastic element to it. This is families over like really a sustained uh, time, like over 150 years and longer. So the same families owning and managing these companies. So they need cheap energy, right? This is very clear demand from them to the government. Now, the electorate has a very clear environmental focus. So the energy question, if you think about nuclear, for instance, has always been framed through the perspective of environmental issues. Not, Not energy issues not energy issues in terms of what we need to produce, right? And in peace terms, right? So this is why it's very important Uh to see that the security and the energy question go together because the opposition to nuclear came from A, environmental issues uh, about potential super-GAU, meltdown of of nuclear plants, Mm -hmm. right? And the question that you could use this material for weaponry, right? And this was the opposition. And this is now also 
the moment where the German public very much wishes for peace between Russia and Ukraine, very much driven out of this idea that like war in itself is something negative and not necessarily really thinking through at which terms this peace would come, especially for Ukraine. And the question of environmentalism. So now the transition from fossil fuels, which ironically first also needs more fossil fuels because you need to also heat up a lot to create the infrastructure for renewable energy. So the renewable energy now faces the same kind of tension that first of all, it makes prices go up first, right? Especially now power prices increase a lot in Germany, which is a problem for the industrial aristocracy. And you have this moment where you actually need the energy infrastructure, right? Yeah, you need, you need the here, stuff. You need to build the stuff. You need the stuff. You need the mills. And the mills aren't good for the birds, right? And they aren't good for like the general biodiversity. So there is this tension between the energy infrastructure and a green perception of like a healthy environment and a government that needs to navigate between those different demands. So the big question for Germany in the next 10 years, 15 years, who wins? The industrial aristocracy, as you termed them, or the environmentally aware population? Who do you think? So historically, the industrial aristocracy was very successful. So there will certainly be some element of win for them. On the other hand, our nuclear policy was not in line with the industrial aristocracy's priorities. They would have uh, continued with nuclear. And there's also the problem that this industrial aristocracy is very conservative in the terms of trying to maintain the economic model that Germany had and that made them very wealthy and influential, powerful, right? And right now, there is just like, we need to move to renewable energies for two reasons like the question of climate, but also really just strategically in terms of being independent from energy sources that we simply don't own. And there's lots of sort of resistance. I mean, the industrial aristocracy is in favor of transition, but transition in a very long time horizon. And so the question really is now, can the German economic model update itself? Yeah, can it transform itself? Yes, and it's a deep transformation. And that transformation, as you rightly pointed out, David, has political and economic costs. And the question is, who's going to bear it? And people get a sense of that, particularly now with the government that wants to have like an austerity policy at the moment of recession, of low growth, of high inflation, still wants to save money, you know, the part of the economic model is also German obsession with saving. Yes, I have noticed this. Instead of investment. Yes, I have noticed this. It's, it's, it is quite amazing, this, this, this default position to saving in Germany all the time. It is a mystery how one could not learn those lessons historically that you can't save your way into your politically more stable world, let's say. But this is what's happening right now. So we need to transform, but we don't want to spend the money on it in terms of like it shouldn't be on the government's balance sheet. So where are the costs? Are they on the capitalists' balance sheets? The aristocracy are the are the people. Or on the households. And with like uh, we have a hotly debated policy on heating, replacing heating in houses. And there you can see that the first attempt really was to push it onto the households, the costs. And so yes. we do have a, like the redistributive struggles of this energy slash climate transformation is 
at the core of German politics right now. And just before we go, Andrea, when we were in Berlin and when I was in Berlin looking at German newspapers and, and you know, to the extent that absorbing a bit of German news, obviously the alternative for Deutschland seems to be the party that is gaining most against this background. Tell me what is happening to that AFD vote, why it's going up and why it's all related to this sort of transition. Because the idea is when you move from A to B, things break and things change. So explain to me why they're so popular in the in, in the polls. So the AFD is a, a classical right-wing populist party that is very good at pointing out the problems and analyzing the problems. So they first became more prominent in domestic politics on the national level with the influx of migrants in 2014-15, where they were opposed to that policy. And now they gain very much as being opposed to the transition that we have to make to our economic model and to our energy sources. And what they are representing is a good I think, problem analysis, saying like, look, guys, like this is how the standard politicians want to transform policy and this will be at your cost. And so people who are very dependent on the gas industry, for instance, like on gas, so the industries that are now affected by the fact that we don't have access to Russian gas anymore, they are scared for their employment and for good reasons. And they don't see what the offer is from the government. So the IFD is providing problem analysis, collecting votes with this, but doesn't offer any solution of how to get up. Not at all. So it's a very classical populist party Unfortunately, very much, I want to say, on the right wing in terms of social policies, in terms of migration policies, etc. So just, it's very concerning. And just finally, are you, are you worried about that as a German citizen? Yes, I'm very worried because I do think we really structurally underestimate because our general wealth is still good, right? If you, if you walk through Germany or at least large parts of Germany, you get the sense of a wealthy country. You also have still individual living standards are relatively high in terms of housing and having a car, et cetera, um, access to healthcare, and so on and so forth. So people have kind of a sense that it's going well, but at the same time, they also feel that with these past crises, like with the COVID crisis, with the financial crisis, the responses to these crises has always led to higher inequality. So the wealthy became much wealthier. Germany is a very unequal country, not far behind the United States in personal inequality. And so there is a sense of losing out and being left behind that is also materially correct. And there's no policy from the government of addressing this. No, it rather seems that the next crisis, the climate energy crisis, is again one where the costs will be pushed on individuals and where particularly families uh, with low income are losing out. And these are potential protest voters, unfortunately. Andrea, as always, this is an amazing sort of little snapshot of what's going on. So we've got energy, we've got Russia, we've got the industrial aristocracy, we've got who's going to pay the bill, we've got the rise of populism. It's an amazing cocktail to be going into uh, the second half of this decade with, isn't it? Yes, I do think the next 10 to 15 years will be very rocky waters for, for German politics. Andre, we will leave it there and I will talk to you and I'll see you at Kilconomics. Okay. I am, thank you for having me, David, and see you in November. 
So, Mac, the one thing, you know, my slight obsession, it's easing now with Trump. The only thing that I ever agreed with Trump His parents on, were German. His parents were German. Exactly. There you but, go. I like the link there. I like it. It's a little bit tangential, but I'll, I'll give it to you. Just go. Just roll with it, man. Just roll with it. But he was the only thing that he said that actually I agreed with. He always said this. Germany was over-aligned on Russia for energy. And now it's coming to pass. But As opposed to golden showers, like he was over-aligned <laughs> on the Russians for... True, 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 true. But come here, like, like. Well, that's Andrea, what Andre said. Yeah, yeah. Andrea was brilliant there, and there's there's loads of stuff that we can get into, and we will over time. But the big question for me is: so Germany is under pressure for to heat things up, as you say. Yeah, it's a it's a and, boily economy. It's, yeah, it's, and it's, to keep the economy going and industry going. Yeah. So if they falter, as they kind of are now, what does that mean for the rest it's, of it's, Europe? This is huge, right? So so basically. All of Europe has been anchored to Germany since the 19... Well, obviously, for the last 120 years. Yes. Germany's yeah, the biggest yeah, yeah. country. It's the big... You know, it's, it's this big block in the middle. But West European politics and geopolitics has been always predicated on a German Europe. Mm. That basically, at the heart of it is this huge economic giant called Germany, right? And Willy Brandt, their chancellor from the 60s and 70s, described Germany and a very good expression, West Germany, as a an economic giant, but a political pygmy. Yes. Right. So it was yeah, always yeah. afraid of itself, right? And the fascinating thing you say about Russia and, and, and Germany, like if you look at the history of European politics and economics going back 200 years, mm. what you find is that the Atlanticists view, which is basically Britain. And the Americans, once they got involved in, in big politics, but particularly Britain, they have been obsessed by keeping Germany and Russia apart. So all the great alliances were always France and Russia against Germany. Yeah. France, Britain and Russia against Germany. The reason is, the weirdest thing weird to say is the most natural alliance in Europe is an alliance between that country that has loads of energy and no industry yeah. And that country that has loads of industry and no energy. Yeah, yeah. Germany absolutely. and Russia. So it's this weird sort of symbiotic relationship right at the heart of Europe that, you know, it's characterized by invasions, by fights, by apocalyptic, apocalyptic catastrophes. Mm. But yet there's a sort of a compelling almost it's it's an almost elemental force that drives these it's, two. it's almost like brother like no they're like yeah. brothers yeah, kind of yeah. And, and, and you really notice that when you go to germany there's a there's a hypersensitivity towards russia and all things russian because of this weird relationship but the crux of it is now germany has been unbelievably successful at keeping its wages suppressed mm. right which is why germany's incredibly good value when you go there mm. it's every year they have these big wage agreements. It's a thing called the IG Metal agreements, right? Every year. Okay. And cheap energy from Russia. And now the cheap energy from Russia is gone. So how do they transition, as you said, between absolute dependency on Russia, mm. 55%. It's amazing, right? And green energy. And how do you do that without a political catastrophe? You know, it's, it's a high wire act. But I, I find it amazing that the Greens were so... I know that the nuclear power was a crucial element to all of this. But they shut them down, which which I find hard to comprehend. I think a lot of people find it hard to comprehend. But, you know, the Greens need to be a little bit more pragmatic. It's too late now, of course. But 
they, they need, need to rebuild those nuclear power stations. Absolutely. And, 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 they, they and even won't. if it's only for the short and medium term, before there's new green energy but, but, infrastructure is, is built. It's very clear that nuclear is part of the energy solution for the world. Well, right? that's true. You know, yeah. it's, it's much, much safer than it ever was. It's much more efficient, but it's incredibly expensive mm. to build. But if you come back to the original question about Europe, right? So Europe's entire anchor has been predicated on a well-behaved Germany at the centre of Europe, 85-odd million people, huge industrial power, mm. always slightly afraid of itself and consequently unable to lead and unwilling to lead. Mm. That gave France a bigger role. The French loved that sort of carry-on because they've got a bigger role. Now what you find is this Germany is slightly unleashed. It's slightly unnerved by what's happening in Ukraine. It's at odds with the rest of Europe because it's so dependent on Russia. Mm. And its only supply of gas now is Norway. But that changed the whole thing. Imagine they've got a coalition now, a tripartite coalition. Mm. Imagine the alternative for Deutschland. Well, of course, get in. Say, like, they, yeah. Like, like, imagine they get in next time. That means Germany is a totally changed country. Yeah. And all our suppositions, all our assumptions, all our presumptions about a quiet, quiescent Germany in the middle being well-behaved, go out the window. And that's huge for Europe. 